Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 110. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So this week we bring you Trifecta Special number 7. Trifecta Specials showcase three different short stories by three different authors read by three different storytellers. Stick around after the show to listen to a promo for something called Penguicon. I reckon it's either a science fiction convention or a get-rich-quick scheme involving Nigerian penguins. You'll have to listen to find out. Also, before we jump into the show, I wanted to mention that the Drabblecast is now doing a weekly TwitFic contest. But Norm, what the crap is TwitFic? You may ask. Well, for our purposes, a TwitFic story is one that's exactly 100 characters. That's right, 100 letters slash characters, not counting spaces. That's enough for about two medium-sized sentences. You can keep track of your character count in Microsoft Word, so go ahead and give it a shot. But Norm, why 100 characters? You may ask. Well, a drabble is a 100-word story, so might as well keep it consistent. Think of it this way. If a flash fiction story is a shortish little fella, say, Korean dictator Kim Jong-il, and a drabble is a way shorter version, say, a Kim Jong-il fraggle, then a twitfix story is the stillborn conjoined fraggle fetus hanging limply from Kim Jong-il's soft furry thorax. But Norm! Actually, I admit that was a pretty insightful analogy. I totally understand what twitfix is now. But what the crap is Twitter? You may ask. Yeah, I don't really know yet either, but everyone's doing it, so, you know. Our editors will pick their favorite TwitFix story, either submitted via email to drabblecast at yahoo.com or posted on the TwitFix section of our discussion forums. We'll publish it to all our Drabblecast friends on Twitter every Wednesday. So get going. Our first story this week is called The Frozen People by Danny Adams. Danny's work has recently appeared in Strange Horizons, Not One of Us, and Mythic Delirium, with a poem forthcoming in Weird Tales. He's just finished a short novel called The City Beyond Play, co-authored with Philip Jose Farmer. This story originally appeared in Abyss and Apex in 2006. So, without further ado, The Frozen People by Danny Adams. The village of Kriegerwald, on the shores of Lake Tufel, high in the Swiss Alps, could only be reached by foot or ski lift, which suited the villagers. The villagers possessed broad foreheads and flat noses, and they spoke with strange guttural accents even the people in the valley below barely understood. They had a singular tourist attraction, popular enough to fund village maintenance, but not to flood them with visitors or stir a desire for greater accessibility. Their attraction was the Ice Warrior. He was a wiry little fellow, dressed in elk skin and wielding a sharpened fishing pole, made attractive by having been frozen on the mountainside the past 7,000 years. He also had a broad forehead and a flat nose, so the Kriegerwalders regarded him as their common ancestor. Outsiders could view him for ten francs, free to kinder under five. The villagers were also proud of their precision. Even nature ran like clockwork. Every December 17th, Tufelstag, at 3.36 p.m., a geothermal jet shot into Lake Tufel, 
which normally reflected the sky like smoky glass, and thawed it for exactly twelve minutes. Then, for reasons no one understood, the lake flash froze and stayed frozen for another year. Warning signs abounded, so careless daredevils and ignorant travelers abruptly preserved waited till next Tufelstag for rescue. This year, though, dark clouds shrouded the peaks of Kriegerwald. A single lightning bolt split the Ice Warrior's transparent tomb, and as the clouds dissolved, he lurched up, rubbed his eyes, emptied his bladder into the snow, then carried his fishing pole down to Lake Tufel. The villagers were thrilled, but Rogeverterix, his name, all they could get out of him, was less so, especially once he discovered the frozen lake was barren of fish. Ultimately, when he was tired of flashbulbs and incessant demands, he cursed at them in prehistoric Celtic, though everything in prehistoric Celtic sounded like cursing, and he fled into the forest, never to be seen again. Fortunately, the Kriegerwalders didn't take long to recoup their tourist business. The international coverage of Rogeverterix's awakening also highlighted the miraculous properties of Lake Tufel, and the world-weary quickly pounded their way to the village's chill doorstep. They paid a lot of cash, and in exchange, could sleep, flash frozen, for a year. More tourists come every day to gawk at them, or sometimes to leave notes or flowers. If you want to ice sleep, prepare to wait. The lake filled up fast, and the waiting list is long. But the Kriegervalders take down every name carefully, priding themselves on their precision. Our next story is called Sheltered by Ralph Gamelli. Ralph's work has appeared in places like Weird Tales, McSweeney's, The Morning News, and The Big Jewel, as well as on the Drabblecast, with the story My Mustache, A Love Story, from Trifecta Special 3. The story is read to you by Ray Sizemore. Ray is a tavern manager and karaoke host, meaning that he's personally responsible for the dissemination of many bad beers and songs, along with a handful of delicious beers and songs. His hobbies include acting, reading, and frittering away massive watches of time on the internet. You can find him online as a guest narrator at starshipsofa.com, as well as his own unevenly maintained blog slash podcast at xrayvisions.wordpress.com. We'll have that linked in our show notes. So without further ado, Sheltered by Ralph Gamelli. One fine day, an enormous asteroid was observed to be on a collision course with planet Earth and without delay, construction began on the underground shelters. It was the only possible course of action in the face of such impending devastation. The entire human race would be accommodated. No one would be left behind. However, as the throngs fled deep into the earth, a hearty few chose to stay where they were and accept whatever fate had planned for them. Boldly, they turned to face the sky and watched the great rock slip narrowly past them and continue its journey through space. They jumped and cheered and rejoiced. 
A smiling young woman rushed to the sealed entryway that led underground and shouted, Come out! Come out! The danger is past! But the gruff voice that responded did not share the same relief. It's not safe. But it is! The asteroid is gone! Even as we speak, it's moving farther and farther off! She looked expectantly at the thick entry door, waiting for it to swing open. Is that so? The voice replied. How do you know that smaller pieces of it haven't broken off? They could start raining down on you any minute for all you know. The young woman's smile faltered now, and once again she and her band bravely faced the sky and awaited their fate. Yet, all that struck them was bright sunshine and a warm, pleasant breeze. Nothing! Nothing at all! Now it's truly safe! There came a brief silence. Then, safe for now, maybe. But there are plenty more asteroids where that one came from. Space is full of them. The young woman wondered if she had heard correctly. Maybe so, but the chances of another... Don't forget about comets. No shortage of those either. Comets? And other dangerous things, too. A hundred we know about and a hundred more we can't even imagine. Now we'll just sit tight right here. Thank you very much. The young woman and her companions exchanged puzzled looks. We respect your caution, but as you can surely hear, we're fine. For the time being, anyway. Pardon? Look, you respect our caution, and we respect your choice to stay above, crazy as it may seem to us. So what do you say we just agree to disagree and wish each other well? You... you won't come out? We'd rather not. What about food and water? We brought plenty with us, don't worry. What about... Sunshine. Have you seen the latest statistics on skin cancer? What about flowers and fields? Allergies. What about... Listen, I should really get going. I want to get deeper inside. Could be dangerous just being this close to the surface. But there is no danger. Or so you hope. And then another silence arrived and expanded until the young woman and her companions broke the quiet by shouting and calling and pounding on the impenetrable door. But never again was a voice heard to come from the other side. Our final story is called In Order to Conserve by Cat Rambo. Cat's fiction has been published in Asimov's, Weird Tales, and Strange Horizons, among other magazines, while her interviews have appeared in the Broadsheet and at the Onion's AV Club. She's the fiction editor of Fantasy Magazine, a link to which you'll find in our show notes, and her collection, Eyes Like Sky and Coal and Moonlight, can be pre-ordered from Paper Golem Press, a link to which you can also find in our show notes. Visit her website at www.kittywumpus.net, which you'll probably also be able to find in our show notes. The story is read to you by writer and radio host Frank Key of The Hooting Yard at hootingyard.org. The Hooting Yard is one of the most amusing slash confusing things on the internet, in my opinion. 
you should dig in. Frank's latest story and blog post is called The Pastures Red with Uneaten Sheep Placentas. Need I say more? So without further ado, In Order to Conserve by Cat Rambo. In order to conserve colour, the government's first banned newspaper inserts, the ones where dresses and dishwashers and plastic toys and figurines of gnomes with wary smiles tumbled across glossy surfaces. Readers faced columns of type interspersed with dour black and white line drawings, no slick sheets cascading on their laps as they unfolded the newsprint to gaze at the reports of latest developments in the colour crisis. Others turned to the internet, monochromatic monitors scrolled by blogs denouncing the administration, the liberals, the conservatives, the capitalists, alien spiders, and a previously obscure cult known as the advanced altar of the rainbow serpent. The change had been almost imperceptible at first. Only artists, fashion designers and gardeners noticed the dimming of shades, the shadows of reds, blues, purples that blossomed from less verdant stems. They brought the shift to the attention of white-coated scientists who measured the changes in angstroms, then announced that laboratory results proved it true. Somewhere, somehow, colour, once thought an inexhaustible natural resource, was running out and doing so quickly. The National Guard quelled the initial panic while their counterparts did the same in other countries. Marching along in their drab uniforms, they shook hands with the populace and rescued black and white cats from birch trees. Waving for the cameras, they smiled that all was well before having them shut down and bundled away by nervous newsfolk, breaking up crowds that had gathered to discuss the situation. Colour TVs were piled in broken heaps on street corners, awaiting pickup by the shadow-hued trucks that lumbered and clanked their way through early morning beneath a colourless sky. As the months passed, more stringent measures were introduced and more and more things were rationed out with booklets of black on black stamps. People tried to use the rarer colours, magenta, fuchsia, pale lavender, but even so, the fashion industry unwillingly made black and white houndstooths, seersuckers, plaids and ginghams the next statement of style. Grade school students were introduced to the fine art of cross-hatching, Studios set to work, uncolorizing old movies. Colour became totally contraband. The majority of police car paint jobs were unchanged. Taxi cabs, on the other hand, turned grey striped with silver, a gleaming paint that reflected a thousand shades of concrete. You would have thought that people would have mobbed art museums to stare at the last canvases ever touched by colour, but attendance fell off. People didn't want to be reminded of what they were missing, and security guards, their eyes welling deep with tears, moved among the lonely paintings before going to collect their last paychecks. An acute scientist, whose hobby was the cello, was the first to notice the decline in sound. 
the blackberry finches and house sparrows that flocked to her feeder each morning to feast on thistle seed were morose, silently pecking at each other. Sighing, she picked up the telephone, then changed her mind and bicycled away to send a telegram to the White House. Teachers were forced to come up with new classes to replace band, orchestra and music appreciation. Playground shouts were monitored. The uniformed guards held up placards to the students. Conservation begins with you and taught sign language during the lunch hours. Flashing white lights took the place of bells and buzzers. Audiences, after watching their black and white movies, took flashlights out of the purses and pockets and flicked them on and off to demonstrate approval. Mimes were still unpopular. People thought and thought again before they said anything. Therapy sessions often consisted of 50 minutes of silence, therapist and patient staring at each other, signalling with raised eyebrows, hesitant smiles, gentle nods, and at times inexplicable tears signalling some breakthrough. The scientists wrote furious notes to each other, denouncing various theories for the shortages. Gene Dixon predicted that the San Andreas Fault would open and Elvis swagger forth, flanked by Jim Morrison and John Lennon, bringing with them new supplies of colour and sound that would swell forth across the world like a nuclear explosion of colour, expanding outward in concentric rings in a single joyous shout while the angel Gabriel blew back up saxophone. Silence is silver, read the billboards. Walk softly and carry a big grey stick. When imagination began to ebb, the government again took active measures. Some philosophers and scientists pointed out that in order to solve the problem, creative thinking would be necessary. Death squads were immediately dispatched to their houses. But still, overall, there was a surprising lack of protest, if anyone had bothered to think much about it. Polls showed no one cared enough to vote. Sure, it sounded good to protest creativity's absence, but there were benefits to not thinking too hard, pluses to not worrying about things too much. The television programmes were still the same, after all. A black and white flicker with dialogue in a slow scroll along the bottom of the screen, hazy snow hovering around the edge, as though to signal the arrival of some grey winter of the soul. Well, that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. So, promo time. Penguicon 7.0 will be May 1 through 3, 2009. Will Wheaton, Jane McGonagall, Rasmus Lerdorf, Sarah Hoyt, John Mad Dog Hall, and the Candy Fab Project. More than a thousand geeks who gather annually in Southeast Michigan to celebrate science fiction and fantasy, free and open source software, and other geek interests. Packed with scheduled content, a half dozen conventions combined. Gaming, comedy concerts, new media. Mix and match a weekend that's just for you. So expansive, it's like a whole solar system to explore. Take the guided tour at penguicon.org.
Okay, so yeah, that does sound more fun than giving my bank account number to some African penguins with bad grammar. Well, that was our show. If you enjoyed, you can help us out by donating to us so we can pay our authors and keep bringing you weekly weirdness. You can do so either once, or you can subscribe for a measly five bucks a month via the donate buttons on our website at drabblecast.org. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our other fiction podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, or our MP3 feed, if that's the file format you prefer. Or you can join our discussion forums and nestle yourself deep into Drabblecast's soft, furry thorax. You can share this content all you like, because we use a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license, which means you can't change it, and (laughs) trust me, you can't sell it. But you can share it all you like. Well, that's it for this week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Until then, the Drabblecast staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to punch a mime in the face. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. Hey, has anybody here heard the one about the cannibal who passed his brother in the woods? Oh, come on. What, you heard that one already? Oh.